Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Tonight, I've got a lot of slides. I've got about 50 of them. I don't know how this is going to go. We're going to tap into some really uh, interesting stuff, okay? Bill's looking at me with some skepticism, and I I just want to rebuke that right now. I want to rebuke the skepticism because I think that we're going to set the tone for this passage that we are going to be looking at in the book of John. Uh, We will start sort of in a backhanded way. We're going to be spending a good portion of our time actually in the book of Genesis dealing with the text that I read during um, our worship time. This is the story of Jacob's ladder or the dream of Jacob. You can see the artwork here. And I actually just want you to to look at this artwork and see if anything sticks out to you and kind of commit it to memory. And we're going to kind of motor on. The, The crux of what we're talking about today is in order to understand the New Testament, in order to understand what Jesus is talking about, you have to understand the Old Testament. And a lot of times it's not just understanding the stories of the Old Testament, but you have to step back into, this is going to sound beautiful. Are you guys ready? You have to step back into a first century Jewish milieu in order to understand what Jesus is saying and what the authors of the Gospels are trying to communicate to their audience. This is a story that I think is somewhat familiar from the, from the book of John, but it hinges upon our awareness and our knowledge of this familiar story in Genesis as well. Okay, so instead of reading through the passage, I'm going to kind of guide us through this reading, and some of this will be review, maybe even a painful review for you, but it's important for us to set the framework for what we're talking about so that we can understand what John is attempting to communicate about Jesus in his gospel. You guys ready? Are you all caffeined up? Okay, well, we're just going to roll the dice here and see how it goes, all right? This is Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. This is actually the first story that we get of Jacob on his own. Jacob is one of the patriarchs of uh, the family of Israel. We have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is usually the clause that's used. He's one of the, the most important figures in um, the building of God's people in the nation of Israel. Okay, this is Genesis chapter 28. This is the first story that we have of Jacob apart from his parents and apart from his brother. It says that Jacob left Beersheba, or if you want to tap into your Hebrew roots, you can say Beersheba. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Now, before we can understand anything about the story, we have to set the background and know something about Jacob. And this is where we might hinge on to some painful um, background information. For the church crowd, the people that have spent any amount of time within the church, especially if you spend any amount of time in a Sunday school program or a youth group, you know this story. But let's go back to it for a minute because it sets the context here. Jacob has an older twin brother named Esau. 
Okay, so Jacob is the younger of two twins. Esau, when he emerges from the womb, he is noted to be red and hairy, which is why he is named Esau. That's not a good thing. You know how everybody says that all babies are cute. If you have a a really red, hairy baby, I don't know how that's going to communicate to the people that come to visit. But Esau was red and hairy. He was named Esau. And then afterwards, Jacob comes out like grabbing his heel, the heel of his brother. Uh, Jacob's name means something like a heel grabber, which is actually an idiom for a deceiver almost, or like a scoundrel sort of uh, situation. So Jacob has an older twin brother named Esau, and in the ancient Near East, the eldest is the one who is supposed to inherit all sorts of things. The majority of the land, they have a birthright, they will get the parental blessing, all of these things come into play later. However, before Jacob and Esau were born, it was prophesied that Jacob, the younger, would actually rule over Esau, the older. We have this strange story uh, with Jacob and Esau's parents. It says that Isaac is praying to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. This is a typical motif in the Old Testament. We have a barren woman and somebody crying out to God on behalf of her or she on behalf of herself that God would open up her womb and have children. And it says the Lord answered her prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. But then it goes on to say that the babies were jostling each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and this is the response. The Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. This is a frightening prophecy because this kind of goes against everything in this culture at this time. The younger does not serve the older. It's the opposite. The older is the one that's sort of in charge and has uh, the majority of the blessing and the birthright. But here from the very beginning, we see that God is acting in a counterintuitive sort of framework. This is the necessary background. Jacob has an older twin brother, Esau. It's prophesied that Jacob would rule over his older brother, Esau. And as many of you already know, Jacob rips off his brother twice in the narrative. He lives up to his name as the one who is a deceiver, the one who is a scoundrel, the one who is a heel grabber, the one who is conniving and a trickster. Jacob is not a great character in the outset of this story. The first uh, instance of this is when Jacob steals the birthright from his older brother Esau. And he does so because Esau is out hunting in the land. Um, The text actually says, when the young men grew up, Esau became an outdoorsman who knew how to hunt. And Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob is the one who hangs out around the tents. He hangs out with his mom. Esau is the one who goes out into the field and, and kills wild animals and brings them back and cooks up tasty food for his father. We have this sort of motif where Esau is the man's man, the stereotypical man's man, and Jacob is the stereotypical not man's man who stays around the tents and is loved more so by his mother than by his father. 
So we have these two that are kind of rival twins. It says once when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and he says to Jacob, I'm starving, let me devour some of this red stuff. In the Hebrew, it actually says, give me some of the red stuff from the red stuff. He's not particular about what he's going to eat. He'd eat anything. I don't know if you guys have been in that moment in life where you're hungry. You're probably not to this point, but you're so hungry, you'll eat anything and you're rummaging through the pantry and just whatever you see, you find and you eat it because you're, you're starving. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so, so Esau is to this point. He's wanting some of the stuff that, that Jacob is cooking up and it says that he just wants to have some of the red stuff that, that Jacob is, is cooking and Jacob, the trickster, turns it and says, sell me your birthright if you're gonna get some of this stew that I'm making. And Esau says, since I'm going to die anyway, what good is my birthright to me? And then Jacob said, give me your word. And he did, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and got up and left, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. This is an important moment in the story where the younger begins to become uh, more, uh, to have more authority, if you will, or have more status or more importance than the older, and the prophecy begins to be laid out. We also see later on in the story where Jacob steals the blessing from his brother Esau in the same sort of motif. The dad, Isaac, wants to send out Esau, and he says, Esau, I love you. Go out and catch me some of that wild game that you do and cook it up real nice because it's tasty. And I want to have some of this, this food that you will cook for me before I bless you and give you this parental blessing. The text says that, that Isaac is, is nearly blind and is old and he wants to kind of do this before he dies in order to pass on the, the blessing to his oldest son, Esau. Isaac's wife is around the tents and she's hearing this take place and she goes and she conspires with her son Jacob and says, son, go to the field and take a couple of the animals out there and bring them back and I'll cook up some food because your father is wanting to bless your older brother Esau and I don't want that to happen. And Jacob responds saying, well, I'm not red, I'm not hairy, so how are we going to fix that? Don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And we know how the story pans out. Jacob puts on the clothes of his brother. He takes some of the animal skins that, that they sacrifice in order to cook up this meal, and they put it on his arms so that when he goes into his nearly blind dad, dad feels the arms and they're hairy and smells the garment that he's wearing as his brother Esau. And he tricks his dad into getting this parental blessing. And this is important for our story here. It says, when Esau hears about this, he eventually comes back in with the stew and he comes in and says, dad, I have the stuff that you wanted from me. And he says, well, who are you? I just ate and I'm full and I just gave out my parental blessing. What's happening? And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, bless me too, my father. If you have anything left, put your hand on me and speak a word of blessing over me. In this ancient Near Eastern context, this was pretty much everything to have the father speak life and hope and good future over the son. And this was usually done over the oldest and not the youngest. And Jacob has stolen the blessing. And now Isaac could not give out another blessing. And Esau is ticked. Isaac says, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. I want you to commit this into, into your memory here for a second, because this text says, your brother came deceitfully. The word there is dalu. Say dalu. Now, this is Greek. The Old Testament is not written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Are you with me? 
Originally, the text was written in Hebrew, but then when the language of the day changed, it was translated into Greek, and everyone began reading the Greek Old Testament. This is actually the version of the Bible that most of the New Testament authors have in mind when they're quoting the Old Testament. I just want you to sit with that for a minute. The New Testament authors are not using the originals. They're using translations of the original. There's a lot in that, and it'll hit you in a couple of days. Just sit with it and put it in the back of your head for now, okay? So this is the Greek translation. Your brother came deceitfully. He came metadalu. He came with deceitfulness, and he stole your blessing. And then Esau continues speaking, saying, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Isn't he rightly named heel grabber? Isn't he rightly named deceiver and scoundrel and all around terrible person? Isn't he rightly named trickster? Isn't he rightly named the one who rips people off? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright. Now Esau, we could parse this out a bit. Right? He comes in from the field and he says, I'll give you anything for a bowl of red stuff. Like he's, there's some culpability here with Esau. But he's going into it and he says, he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. He's taken everything. And the prophecy begins to be true where the older is serving the younger and things are not cool around the homestead. So mom says, Jacob, my boy, Get lost. You've got to go because your brother is going to kill you if you don't. And this is where we pick up our story here in Genesis 28. Jacob is not really too great of a brother. He is a trickster. He is a deceiver. He is one who doesn't have a lot of good things going on in his life, yet he has some blessing placed onto him. So Jacob, he leaves Beersheba and sets out for Haran. He's going to find a wife. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. In the ancient world, you don't travel when the sun goes down. In fact, the, the, the simple fact that Jacob is out on his own, traveling into an unknown place for him, is pretty bold. This isn't what you would think about the mama's boy who sits around the tent and, and cooks stew and, and doesn't go out and, and kill his own uh, dinner. But he stops for the night because the sun had set. One scholar says the home-loving favorite of an overprotective mother is now in exile. He's utterly alone and friendless. For some reason, that word grabbed me. He's alone. He's betrayed his brother not once but twice. Even his own flesh and blood has pushed him out the door. He's got nothing He's in exile on his own in a foreign land where he has no idea where it is that he is going. He's embarking on a long and perilous journey that is to take him from the land that he knows to the land of his mom's relatives. Taking one of the stones there, it says, in the middle of this wilderness, he doesn't know where he is. He's alone. He's by himself. He's in exile. He's friendless. He takes a stone and he puts it under his head and he lays down to go to sleep. And he had a dream. And this is common in the Old Testament. People have dreams and God shows up to them in these dreams and he communicates a message to them in the midst of their dreams. It says he had a dream in which he saw a, stair, a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now I want you guys to think here for a moment. 
I want you guys to pretend to be uh, ancient readers of the text. What's odd about this? Not just the fact that he would lay his head on a rock. That's odd, but we'll let that one be for now. It says that a ladder shows up. It's a stairway that's resting on earth and its top is reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. If the angels were ascending on the staircase, what does that imply about where they were prior to? Somewhere down here. For an ancient Jewish reader, this is the kind of stuff that they completely went off on. Now, this is the point of why we're looking at this, because it says here that the angels were ascending and descending on this, this, this ladder that's showing up in Jacob's dream. And I have to take a moment to talk about ancient Jewish interpretive traditions. See my all caps there? Because I knew at this moment some of you would be failing me. Some of you would be phasing out. And I knew that we would have to back this up and make this kind of exciting for you because this is the hook upon which we can understand the New Testament story of Jesus. Ancient Jewish interpretive traditions, people, because when the folks were reading the, the Bible, they cared about it, and they cared about every word that showed up. Remember, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago. There's no free motifs. There's no frivolous uh, language that's being used here. Every word matters, and for an ancient Jewish interpreter, they were looking at every word to try and figure out what in the world was going on, and when they saw that angels were ascending and descending, they stopped, and they said, whoa. If the angels were going up, that means that they were here. And classic Jewish interpreters, they would begin to build stories or to create these frameworks to, uh, to explain their sacred text. And part of me loves this. Not part of me. All of me loves this. Because you contrast that with the way that we usually read the Bible. We say things like, the Bible's authoritative and it, it's, it's everything to me. But we don't read it like this. We don't ask questions of it. We don't, we don't pursue it. We're kind of scared and hesitant because it's the word of God and we can't like question it. We don't ask anything about it. So we just read a story like this and say, yep, angels ascending and descending on a ladder in the middle of nowhere. That's cool. But why was he sleeping on a rock? Hmm. That's the thing that gets us, if anything. But here, they began to build these interpretive traditions as to why angels would be ascending and descending, and they start making these, these traditions that encompass the reading of the scripture. One would be the changing of the guard. So they begin to say, well, if angels were ascending and descending, perhaps there were angels that were guiding Jacob from the land of his parents to this unknown land, and they were kind of acting like, you know ministering angels that would keep him safe. He's in the middle of nowhere and he's alone and he's friendless. So maybe these angels were just kind of going with him and then he goes to sleep and they, they say, well, my shift's over. I'm going up the ladder while some other angels are coming down to take him the rest of the way. Seems logical, doesn't it? You never would have thought of that, right? Can I get an amen on that? You would not have thought of that because we don't read the Bible that closely, but they start creating these traditions to explain what's going on in the text. Now, some rabbis would say, um, much later they'd say, actually, for the ministering angels, they can only minister to someone in the land of Israel, and once they get to the edge, they have to go up, and then other angels who were tasked with leading God's people in foreign lands would go and, you know, be like their bodyguards. So they come up with these whole stories Meanwhile, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because Jacob is in Bethel, which is in Israel, so these angels wouldn't be going up 
and then others coming down. It just didn't make any sense, but this was their first go at why this was happening. Other people began to say, well, it's not just the changing of the guard, it's actually that the angels had been exiled. In the book of Genesis, angels show up quite often. It says that, that angels were there. Remember, there was three angels that appeared to Abraham, and, and they're like, uh, you guys stay here. I'm going to go cook you some food, and we're going to hang out, and it's going to be a good time. And, and like Abraham's hanging out with these angels. And then later, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were two angels that show up that, that are saying, like, hey, this is not going to be good, and God's going to destroy this place, and you guys have to get out of here. In fact, in that story, it says, we are going to destroy this place. So the ancient Jewish interpreters said, wait a second. So Jacob goes to sleep and there's a ladder and angels are ascending and descending. Maybe that means that there were some angels here. And then they go back in their story and say, actually, they were here. And not only were they here, but they were doing things that weren't really appropriate. They were taking the place of God and saying, we are going to destroy certain people when that's God's job to do it. So maybe, maybe they're being punished. And maybe they had to stay in exile for a hundred and some odd years until this takes place. And finally, when God says, I forgive you, he creates a ladder and lets him go back home. This is how the ancient Jewish interpretive mind works. It's not how our mind works, but they start to create these narratives. Now, this doesn't make sense either, and people move forward because they say, well, it's not just about getting the angels ascending out of here. There's actually angels that are descending, so how do we make sense of this? And it leads me to this one, and this is going to fuel us into the book of John. I promise you it's going to put us there, okay? Stick with me. Now, this is not just angels that are ascending, it's angels that are ascending and descending. And some people have concluded that Jacob's task was so important that these angels wanted to come down while he was sleeping and hearing from God, and they just wanted to look at him. They just wanted to ascend and descend and to find Jacob and say, oh, he's so beautiful. And then they would go back up, and they'd have like this escalator of angels coming down to look at him and then go back up. And then come back down and go back up because Jacob is worth seeing. And there's something to that because in the text, remember, there's no throwaway words here in the text. It says that the uh, angels are ascending and descending on it. And one way you could interpret this is they are ascending and descending on the ladder to see Jacob. But you could just as easily interpret on it as they were ascending and descending on him. They were ascending and descending on him, either two, two interpretive traditions here. And this is where it's going to get good, okay? This is like a 27-minute long introduction to get to this one point that I had to spend 27 minutes to get here so that we could understand the book of John, okay? I promise you. There's two interpretive traditions on this. One, they just wanted to go down and see him because he's so good looking. The other interpretive tradition, however, is that Jacob is the ladder upon which they are ascending and descending. And you can read this from the Hebrew because it's ambiguous and Jewish interpreters love ambiguity because it just opens the door for all sorts of different different interpretations, and they start thinking, and they start wondering, maybe Jacob is the latter, because what is being shown in this passage is that Jacob is like the gateway. Jacob is the one who is ushering in the presence 
of God in this place. The text, it continues, it says there above it. It's actually better. It should be there beside uh, it, beside the ladder stood the Lord. And he says this to Jacob in, in light of all of the stuff that he's done. It says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will be spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All the people on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. This is the covenant that God has already given to Abraham and to Isaac. And now he's passing it on to Jacob, even though he's a deceiver, even though he's a scoundrel, even though he's a heel grabber. God's saying, this is what's up. I'm with you. The older will serve the younger. I've got a plan for you, and I'm showing up here right now to demonstrate the veracity of this to you. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I love this line from my dear friend Walter Brueggemann. He says, the wakeful world of Jacob was a world of fear and terror and loneliness, and we may imagine unresolved guilt for the way that he's treated his brother. Those were the parameters of his existence. That was all that he knew was fear and loneliness and betrayal. The dream permits the entry of an alternative into his life. The dream is not a morbid review of a shameful past. It is rather the presentation of an alternative future with God. While this guy's awake, all he knows is fear and trembling. All he knows is stabbing people in the back. And when God puts him to sleep, he gives him an alternative view to his life. And what is this? It says the news that is shared is that there is traffic between heaven and earth on this ladder. Earth is not left to its own resources and heaven is not a remote self-contained realm for the gods. Heaven has to do with earth. And there's a ladder that seems to prove this because the angels, the messengers of God are ascending and descending on it, linking heaven and earth. It says, earth finally may count on the resources of heaven, and they do that in this passage through Jacob. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. God is here. God is present. There's activity that's linking his abode with our abode. There's things that God is doing in the in-between, and we can trust that God will be present here for us. He names the place Bethel, which means house of God. That's a long freaking introduction to get us to the book of John. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? But if you can just stick with me, I'm going to motor us through because this is beautiful. John chapter one, the story now that's a very strange story that is assuming that we know something about Jewish interpretive traditions. It's assuming that we know something about the world of Jesus and the world of the New Testament authors. It's assuming that we know how they read the Bible, how they interpreted the Bible, and how they saw Jesus fulfilling the Bible. It's imperative that we know these things or we're gonna miss a lot of what is being said in this text. In John chapter one, it, it, the story continues in this way. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He finds Philip and he says to him, follow me. 
Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip finds Nathanael and tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Catch it. They're saying the Old Testament is telling stories about this guy and we now know it. He has talked to us over the last night or so. and We've seen what he's about. We've heard what he's saying. We've, we now believe that he is the son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Redeemer. He's everything that we've been waiting for. He's, he's the one and we know that because we know our Old Testament scriptures really well and we see how he's fulfilling them in this place here and now. And then Nathaniel is hearing this and Philip is talking to his friend and trying to get him to come on board. And there's at least one sermon that could be preached here that I'm not preaching here tonight because I decided to go with 40 minutes of ancient interpretive Jewish uh, history. And that's what you get. But here's the other sermon that I could have given to you. Those who believe find who do not. They bear witness to Jesus and so bring others to follow him. This is what we see in the story. These guys are so jacked up that Jesus is the one that they go around, they find their people and they try to bring them on board and they say, we found him. Let's get on board. Pack your stuff. We got to go with this guy. And there's a sermon off to the side here where I can ask you, because we're friends and because I'm very sweaty, who are you inviting to follow this guy? Who are you so excited that we have found this homeless Jewish rabbi, son of God, where you say, I want everybody in my life to know who he is and to know about his goodness and grace and hope. Who is it that when we hear this, we're so excited that we go out and we find them and we bring them in? Note, this is not street evangelism. This is not putting a track on your car window. This is not leaving a tip that's a $1,000 bill that's really fake money. Please don't do that. It's, it's not cool. I don't know that's stepping on toes, but stick them out. I'll jump on them if I have to. Who are we inviting into this story because we love them, and because we at least are seeing who Jesus is. There's a sermon there. I'm not going to preach it. I don't know if I even have to. I played around with it for a bit, but I just felt like it'd be trite and it'd be stuff that you've already heard. People, do the work. If you really believe that Jesus is good, tell somebody. If you really believe that you've seen him in action in your life, Share that with somebody. If you really believe that he's present and that he offers forgiveness and hope, that's a story that people need to hear, especially now. I'm not going to preach that, though. The, the story continues, and, and, and Nathaniel's response is, is cool. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It's terrible. It's not a place where anybody ever goes. It's not a place where anything good ever comes from it. You say that you've read the Old Testament, and you see this guy. Well, he's from Nazareth. That's disgusting. That's gross. Nathaniel's a bit of a, a racist here. He's, he's got some prejudice that he needs to work through in this particular moment. But Philip comes back and uses the words of Jesus to say, come and see. I'll let him be the one who shows you. And this is where the story gets weird. When Jesus sees Nathanael approaching, he says of him, and I don't know if he's like shouting out, I see you approaching there. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's an odd introduction, isn't it? And if you don't know the story from Genesis 28, it's a completely unfathomable introduction 
But this is where you can be thankful that I have guided you. Because he says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no dalas, in whom there is no deceit. He is not like Jacob. This is the one who gets it. Talking about Nathaniel. See, in the Old Testament text, it says Isaac is, is saying uh, to Esau, your brother Jacob came deceitfully, metadalu, and took your blessing. And here in the book of John, it's the same word that's linking these two things. And this isn't accidental. And this isn't something that would slip through the cracks for an ancient audience. They would hear this and Nathaniel would begin to say, Jacob, what's the tie here between me and him? F.F. Bruce says, it, you, could, you could use Jesus' words in this way and it could be paraphrased. Here is one who is all Israel and no Jacob. Nathaniel's got no heel grabbing in his nature. He's got no scoundrel. He's got no trickster. He's got no deceiving. He is true through and through. All Israel know Jacob. Here is a true Israelite. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. It, it's impossible to know what Jesus is talking about here. He says to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, and nobody quite knows what that means. There's a lot of, of, of thoughts here because the fig tree is an important symbol in, in the Jewish culture, but nobody quite knows what Jesus is saying. However, Nathaniel picks up on something, and it seems to be that Jesus is saying something that's true of Nathaniel that only Nathaniel could have known. Perhaps when he was sitting under the fig tree, no one else was in sight, not even Jesus. So when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, and Nathaniel had looked around, scanned the scene, not seen Jesus, he's saying, oh, you, you do know something. And then he makes this declaration, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are everything we've been waiting for. You are the one that the scriptures have been talking about. My buddy Philip was right. And he's basing this all on Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip had even talked to you. We don't know what this means, but this is where it gets cool. Nathanael makes this declaration saying, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than that. And then he added, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on Jacob. You will see the angels ascending and descending on me. And no ancient reader would have missed what we miss. Because they knew about the Jewish interpretive traditions that thought that Jacob was some kind of a link, that Jacob served as this ladder, that Jacob was the one through whom God was, was revealing himself and showing up to be present amongst his people, that God was doing something through Jacob. And now that they know this, Jesus is saying, listen, bro, I know you thought it was cool that I saw you under the fig tree, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you even greater things than that. You're going to see the heavens rip open and the angels, the messengers of God are going to be ascending and descending on me because I 
am the link between heaven and earth because I am the one who is the very presence of God. And John in the earlier verses says that Jesus is tabernacling with his people, that he shows up and he becomes the embodiment of God's presence here and now. And this is what's happening in this passage here. It says, I will, uh, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on me. I got a timer in the back and we're at 36 minutes and I have developed quite a lot of strings here and I'm hoping that I have braided them into something that resembles application and theological edification. But I want to take us one step farther. Marianne May Thompson says this, summarizing what Jesus is, is saying here. He's saying that in his deeds and life, the disciples will see the heavens opened. And as the son of man, he is the ladder who links heaven and earth. If the disciples expected to look up in order to see the opened heavens, what the author of the book of John is doing is he is inviting them to look at what is right in front of them, to look at the word made flesh, to, to look at the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and there to see the revelation of the glory of God in the book of John, this whole weird story about Philip and Nathaniel, it reaches this crescendo where Jesus says, I am the ladder, I am the link, I am the presence of God that's here and now. You don't have to look up, just look at me. And I think for us where we sit now, the message is very similar. At times in our lives, I think that we are looking somewhere far off for something magnanimous to take place. And what we forget is that dwelling within us is the spirit of the living God, the spirit of the risen Christ who has taken over, who lives within, who has become, in a sense, a gateway, who has allowed us to experience true presence who has allowed us to experience true forgiveness and grace and hope. And Jesus is the one who initiates this. In the story, he says, man, you're going to see some pretty cool stuff. And all you have to do is look at me. Maybe I could have gotten there without 40 minutes of ancient Jewish interpretive history. But man, where's the fun in that? I hope that as you guys sit here tonight, and as you think about your own lives, maybe, maybe we've lost that excitement. Maybe we've lost touch of that realization that we don't have to look up. We just look in. That we don't have to be waiting for something that we have already received it. That Jesus has become this revelation that has brought heaven to earth. And not only do we experience it, but God allows us to be participants in it. And that the things that we do, we can actually be agents who bring heaven to earth as well on behalf of King Jesus. My hope is that we do not tire in doing the good works that we are called to do. My hope is that we do not lose our excitement that we serve a risen Jesus. My hope is that we never forget that because of what he has done and because of who he is, the heavens have ripped open and heaven has descended to earth and we don't have to look out or somewhere beyond. We just look at him. The angels, if I may tap into some ancient Jewish interpretive traditions here, the angels are still ascending and descending upon him. And all we have to do 
is see. All we have to do is look upon him and see the goodness that God is at work in this place here and now. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.